0: This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practise. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Health Ed's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022, and we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. Register now at healthed.com.au. Ensuring that our patients with type two diabetes have regular eye screening is essential. Supporting our patient through the long and often arduous treatment journey for diabetic eye complications will require a team-based approach and the use of resources such as Keep Sight. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Associate Professor Peter Van Weingarten. Professor Van Weingarten, please tell us about yourself.
1: Ah, thanks, David. Um, I'm an ophthalmologist and, and researcher. I spend most of my time doing research at the Centre for Eye Research Australia and University of Melbourne. Um, and I've got a, a real passion for diabetic eye disease because I help to run KeepSight, a national program to try and increase the uptake of screening for diabetic retinopathy.
0: Well, it's a very big subject, isn't it, Peter? So why don't you just tell us how your thinking uh, when it comes to a GP or a doctor seeing a patient with possible uh, diabetic eye disease?
1: Yeah, so I think that the main um, point to stress there is is that many of our patients with diabetes are not particularly aware of the link between diabetes and eye disease. And so that's a a key priority of any interaction, communicating the importance of, of regular eye checks. And We can understand why um, the uptake of screening for for diabetic eye disease is is only 50% of of those with with diagnosed diabetes engaging at at the appropriate frequency. And that's because often the disease is asymptomatic until it's very advanced. So most of our patients with um, significant retinopathy may not have any symptoms at all. Uh, and that really underscores the importance of, of screening, even when the eyesight is normal. We know that our patients with diabetes are juggling so many other health priorities. And so it's not surprising that if if eyesight's normal, that that might fall down the list. And suddenly a year becomes two years, becomes three years, and then suddenly um, they present with, with symptoms, which may be due to advanced retinopathy. So, so that would be the first point to make, David, around educating our patients about the importance of of that link between diabetes and and eye disease. The second way that I'd sort of tackle that is is that whenever I see someone with diabetes, I think of it as an exercise in risk assessment. So I I want to ask myself, what is the risk for this patient in front of me being being at risk of of sight loss? Because we know that diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of avoidable blindness for people of working age in Australia. So it's it's a big deal so thinking about risks um as general practitioners you're, you're very well aware of, of the risks of diabetes complications and that's um you know gl- glucose control perhaps out of range um blood pressure control not not meeting targets lipids again being being above targets um those are the, the main um modifiable risk factors but there are other risk factors that we need to think about as well so we know that our diabetes complications tend to travel in groups so you want to have a high degree of suspicion that if someone has nephropathy or peripheral neuropathy or peripheral vascular disease, or in fact, macrovascular disease, that they're highly likely to have comorbid retinopathy. So our suspicions are are elevated when when we know that someone has got complications. Um, We also know that there's a, a steep uptick in the risk of retinopathy after about 15 years of duration of diabetes. So there's that um, duration of of disease is an important uh, factor that we bear in mind when we think about this risk um, estimation challenge. Um, There are certain um, groups of patients that are at higher risk. So we know, unfortunately, that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are at increased risk, not only of diabetes, but also of diabetic retinopathy. Same for patients from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and, and that is mostly related to health system engagement. We also know that in life there are certain periods of, of increased risk for retinopathy. Um, so um, for women who are who are who have diabetes, when they become pregnant, that that constitutes a major uh, risk. You can um, understand that because it's a major hemodynamic and, and metabolic stress period. So. Uh, not only does does diabetes control often become more challenging during that time. There's actually an accelerated um, progression of retinopathy. So, all women who have pre-existing diabetes who become pregnant really should have a diabetes eye check during the first trimester of pregnancy. And the, the general rule is, it doesn't matter how recent her her most um, her, her her latest eye exam has been. I always, you know, suggest just go for that check during the first trimester and that will then determine the frequency of those checks for the rest of the pregnancy. Other periods of of risk of accelerated retinopathy um, can be when there's a a rapid tightening of glycemic control. We we do know that in the long term the very best thing uh, for vision and, and reducing the risk of retinopathy is the stringency of glycemic control but if there's a very high HbA1c and there's a really rapid lowering that can present a, a risk of what we call early worsening of retinopathy so that should be done very closely in concert with an, an eye care provider if, if the, the glycemic levels are very high uh, and, and slow and steady is probably the rule. I guess David one, one other final um, high risk period to, to mention is ocular surgery actually so we know that even um, a, a relatively straightforward procedure like a cataract operation is associated with some inflammation and that can actually uh, precipitate an exacerbation of retinopathy
0: what is the mechanisms behind the worsening with tight control rapid type control yeah so that's um complicated we think that insulin
1: like growth factor lies behind that so we know that when when there is some retinopathy and, and sugar levels have been high for a long time you get um, gradual occlusion of capillaries and that means that the retina becomes ischemic and it's typically the more peripheral parts of the retina when you have that ischemia and the the glycemic levels high often essentially when you get tightening of that control the high levels of igf1 um, that that are around actually unmask the effects of the angiogenic growth factors that are being produced by the ischemic retina. So it's, it's un, sort of opening the floodgates to some of the um, angiogenic factors that are there in the background. Um, and so ty- gradually lowering the glucose minimises the risks of this um, torrential ischemic drive.
0: That still sounds a little bit open to interpretation, Peter. We yep. need a guide. Yep. How rapid is rapid and how slow and steady is slow and steady? Um, so I guess it depends on on that
1: individual patient's underlying retinopathy. So um, you know, rapid control in someone with existing severe non-proliferative disease is highly likely to lead to progression to proliferative disease and macular edema. Those are the two sort of aspects of diabetic eye disease we always think about. The retinopathy and then the maculopathy, whereas someone with um, no or, or, or mild retinopathy may not have any exacerbation at all. So it really, <laughs> I, I just um, there's, there's no hard and fast rule, but we know that if a patient has got retinopathy, then um, that needs to be done closely in concert with their eye care provider.
0: Sure, uh, Peter. I, I guess what I was looking for is um, is it one percent HBA one C reduction of a month or two months? Um, is there a, a a guide that we can use?
1: Yeah, look, I think that's that's reasonable, um, and we can um, safeguard things for our patients who are on the cusp of needing therapy by, um, you know, timing the, the, their treatment in accordance with their their tightening of control. I think the the key message there, David, is is that Titan control is absolutely the best thing that we can do to reduce the risk for our patients. But we may just temporise our approach in patients who have existing untreated retinopathy. The risk is far lower if they've had, for instance, um, laser treatment panretinal photocoagulation for proliferative disease because that's a bit of a safeguard or if they're on um, treatment at the moment. But again, close correspondence with the, the eye care provider is really key.
0: How does ocular surgery for cataract extraction affect the retina?
1: Yeah, although um, modern cataract surgery is is relatively um, minimally invasive, it does um, precipitate some inflammation. So you'll know that that most of your patients who have cataract surgery go on some topical steroids for a short while postoperatively, and that's to quell that, that inflammation that occurs Inflammation happens to be a significant driver of diabetic retinopathy. Mm -hmm. It leads to um, vascular dysfunction and and leakage. And so before the the sort of modern era of of therapeutics with injected anti-angiogenic compounds, um, this was a really problematic um, thing for people with diabetes because... Uh, we would have to use very intensive anti-inflammatory treatments. Mm -hmm. Um, Nowadays, we have the luxury of of these anti-VEGF agents. And so anyone with macular edema or a past history of that can have an injection of that at the time of cataract surgery to minimise the risk of of macular edema postoperatively.
0: Now, Peter, you did mention screening. There are all manners of screening under yeah, Snell and Chart, uh, a quick look in the back of the eye with the room still bright. How minimal should the screening be to be adequate? Yeah, that's a
1: great question, David. So I think at a bare minimum, there should be a, a formal assessment of distance visual acuity. So Snell and Chart with the distance correction on one eye at a time. And the threshold there is is the driving threshold so if someone's got vision poorer than 612 um, in one eye then that should really precipitate a referral to an optometrist for a, you know a more thorough assessment so visual acuity is, is absolutely essential um, and then the basic accepted minimum really is retinal photography so retinal photography has been shown to be equivalent to a slit lamp examination by by an experienced observer. The days of ophthalmoscopy being sufficient for for diabetic retinopathy screening are largely behind us. Um, You can think of ophthalmoscopy as as really looking at, at a big scene through a keyhole. You can get little snippets, but it's very hard to get a comprehensive view. So um, many GPs will will have some experience with slit lamps and if they feel comfortable, you know, with a slit lamp examination, that's great as an accompaniment to a photo. But I think a photo is is a minimum requirement and and that's also a great means of documenting the current state of affairs so that then you can see if there's progress at the next eye check.
0: You know, I'm just going to put before you a um, hypothetical. Uh, This is a patient who is, say, 47 has had diabetes for 15 years, is asymptomatic, but you know, they've missed a couple of um, previous screening. You send the patient off and now the report comes back. And now this is the hypothetical. One that tells you there's non-proliferative background retinopathy. We'll deal with that first. Tell me how you're thinking or how should the GP be thinking about this and how we should progress?
1: Yes, yeah, so um I'd be thinking about that in two ways, one about the eye and two about other diabetes complications, because the eye really is, or the retina really is, a window into um, systemic complications. We get this rare insight, it's the only end organ that we can directly observe and see the neurological and vascular consequences of diabetes. So you're getting this really valuable information that's telling you that this patient, um, may well be at risk of nephropathy neuropathy and, and the other complications so that that's really a critical piece in the overall thinking about the management of your patient the second is is around the level of retinopathy and you know if we look at, at any group of people with diabetes um, you know if we just took a sample um, on the street and and looked at the retina we would find re- retinopathy present in about a third of, of those individuals so it's it's quite common to have some degree of of diabetic retinopathy and for most people that progresses quite slowly but again it comes back to that risk estimation and understanding change over time as well so that's one of the other important aspects of screening is we get an idea of trajectory for an individual because some people can progress quite rapidly from minimal retinopathy to to advanced stages so it's all about that risk assessment. Uh, at 47, this patient's quite young, um, and so it's time to have a, an important review of, of overall diabetes management and some counselling about you know making sure that we're, we're continuing to engage in, in eye checks to make sure that we're not missing
0: progression. You mentioned that it's a window into all sorts of um, vascular complications. To what extent do we check for not just... Um, Uh, nephropathy, that's easy, we do uh, a micro albumin check and ACR. But what about neuropathy? Uh, How hard do we go looking for that? And even though he's 47 with diabetes for so long, do we even consider that we might need to check the heart? If not now, then when
1: um yeah so i mean just to to divide that up into into its component parts. so the links between retinal neuropathy and peripheral neuropathy are are not direct but we know that if someone's getting retinal nerve fiber layer loss then that they are likely to be at higher risk of of neuropathy so again although it it is hard to objectively assess peripheral neuropathy clinically it's part of that comprehensive management so um, I'd, I'd be recommending that in any patient, you know, with 15 years duration of diabetes, in any event, and perhaps you know the appropriate podiatry referrals. In terms of cardiovascular disease risk, we know that there are strong associations at a population level between retinal vascular calibers and risks of um, cardiovascular disease. So again, the window the eye really is a window into, into risk. Mm. What we don't yet have strong evidence for is the predictive value of, mm. of those findings at an individual level. So again, it comes back to the sort of comprehensive risk assessment. I'd be saying male patient, 47, 15 years of diabetes, then yes, that would probably in my mind precipitate
0: a careful review of cardiovascular disease risk. Yes, I'm always very mindful that while we measure all these sorts of risk factors, they're all proxy or surrogate uh, risk in the sense that we only measure risk, but not disease. And I can never tell the patient in front of me whether or not they have any disease, even if their risk is low or high.
1: Yes, absolutely. And they're an individual. And that's, you know, it comes back to the importance of considering the whole picture, taking a good history finding out if there's a strong family history of cardiovascular disease and the like. But uh, again, that's your domain as general practitioners far more than it is mine.
0: Now, you've mentioned the three, um, if you like, the triad. So in this patient, glycemic control, blood pressure getting to targets and making sure the lipids are at targets are important. Are there anything else we should be thinking about in a patient with non-proliferative retinopathy?
1: Yeah, so one thing um, that has been shown in in a couple of large studies to have some potential benefit in people with type 2 diabetes with with some mild to moderate retinopathy is is phenofibrate. So phenofibrate can slow progression to laser treatment in a subset of patients with moderate non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So that's something that you could consider as an adjunct to the existing Uh, lipid management. Um, So the effect is thought to be independent of its effect on lipids that the the actual mechanisms are not fully understood, but there may be some benefit in that.
0: Uh, Any other agents we should consider?
1: We, we know that some of the newer agents for type 2 may well have um reno protective effects and, and cardioprotective effects. Mm-hmm. There is some evidence that they may also be protective for retinopathy. The, the, there are still further analyses of those um, pivotal trials underway. So, again, it's around, I, my, my stance is really it's around optimising glycemic control through whatever means is best mm-hmm. for that patient, but there may be some agents that have some
0: direct retinoprotective effects. Looking at that and understanding that, uh, again, the ACEs and ARBs uh, have the track record for uh, nephropathy, um, would they be your drug of choice for hypertension?
1: Oh, they're they're excellent for, for retina. So, yes, they would be.
0: Right. Now, Peter, let's just say that patient is now sitting in front of you with the results and the results are actually not good. Yeah. And vision is being impaired and there's significant bleeding now. What should GPs do in terms of assessing the need and how to move forward to the next steps?
1: So I think, you know, at that, at that point, it's, it's definitely time for a referral to an ophthalmologist. Um, most of the um, eye screening that's done for diabetes in Australia is done and, and extremely competently so by, by optometrists. But when it gets to the more advanced stages of retinopathy, it really is a trigger point for referral to to the ophthalmologist. As a GP, I think your role is absolutely essential in supporting the patient on on this journey through treatment of of diabetic retinopathy. We know that um, that often it requires multiple treatments, even if it's laser, but certainly if it's injected treatments, that this is a, a long commitment, a long journey, Um, And compliance or adherence with with those um, treatments is absolutely pivotal for the best outcomes for vision. And so that that requires comprehensive support from the the care
0: team. What sorts of issues do you see are the major barriers? I mean, I can imagine the patient being shocked, being very concerned, um, possibly being depressed. That requires extra work with other members of your team, like psychologists. What else have you seen as a specialist that seems to hold people back from actually good adherence to these sorts of treatments?
1: Yeah, it's multifactorial. And and we know that there's no sort of archetypal person with diabetes, because the disease is so common, and it affects all different types of people. So the barriers that are relevant for one person might be quite different to those relevant to another. Obviously, there's an underlying fear. So many surveys have been done of, of People with diabetes and and vision loss and and blindness is one of the greatest fears. So um, that 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 fear can motivate people in different ways. So it could trigger avoidance in in eye checks, and but it could also You know, lead to a cascade of of anxiety and depression. And and as you mentioned, we know that the people with diabetes are at higher risk of anxiety and depression. Financial barriers are are very real. So, um, particularly for these um, anti-VEGF treatments, they often require monthly visits Mm -hmm. to an ophthalmologist, often for twelve to eighteen to twenty-four months. So it's it's an extended journey. Treatments may not be administered each month, but there's that disruption to earning potential potential for having to go every month and there's some uncertainty around whether or not an injection is going to be required this month or not and that can often lead to some um, psychological stress as well but the the financial barriers are real Um, Mm -hmm. disruptions to earnings there may be some out-of-pocket costs and so there's always a case for encouraging your patients to have a discussion with their ophthalmologist if the actual cost of the procedure are a barrier because many ophthalmologists will bulk bill for patients who, are, who have um, challenging financial circumstances. Um, so we've talked about costs, some of the psychological barriers. Um, there's also that dependency of, of needing to be accompanied to the, the clinic visit to the ophthal- ophthalmologist by a, a loved one or, or a mm-hmm. carer and that, that can often be challenging. And then there's, of course, access, because not everyone lives close to their ophthalmologist, um, and and that can be a significant
0: concern as well. So, Peter, we're talking about treatment and the costs. What are currently the most effective treatments for patients with very significant diabetic uh, retinopathy?
1: Yes. Yeah, so whenever we make an assessment of, of diabetic eye disease, um, we divide it into sort of two key classes. And this is a key clinical question whenever you're looking at a, at a retina or a retinal photograph is what is the level of retinopathy and what is the level of um, maculopathy or is there any macular edema? So I'll, I'll discuss each of those in turn because they have slightly different approaches to management. So the treatment sort of threshold for um, diabetic retinopathy is really when there are new vessels growing from the retina. So neovascularization, because what happens over time in diabetes is the very fine vessels, the capillaries of the retina get occluded, and then parts of the retina are starved of oxygen and nutrients. And so as a compensatory response, there's an increased production of angiogenic growth factors, growth factors that cause new blood vessels to form. Unfortunately, they don't form in a, you know adaptive way. They, They form a bit like weeds growing from the surface of the retina. They project out into the vitreous, which is a fluid medium. And so you can think of those very fragile vessels growing out from the retinal surface. They're very um, prone to being um, torn as the vitreous moves around and then causing hemorrhage into the the vitreous. So neovascularization is associated with the high risk vitreous hemorrhage, which can cause complete loss of vision, usually temporary but it also is accompanied by the proliferation of fibrous tissue and that fibrous tissue as it matures contracts and it pulls on the retina and lifts it away from the the back wall of the eye so we get what's called tractional retinal detachment. Mm -hmm. So that's why um, neovascularization really is the trigger point for treatment. The tried and tested Um, treatment for proliferative diabetic retinopathy is laser treatment and that's pan retinal photocoagulation Um, that is involves uh, essentially ablation of small parts of the retina the peripheral retina and it's done using a laser with a a glass contact lens which is placed on the surfaces of the eye to sort of stabilize the eye but also to focus the laser and between a thousand and two thousand laser spots are applied to the mid peripheral retina That's usually done over a few sessions because doing it in one session can cause some inflammation in the eye. And we've already heard earlier in the podcast that inflammation can exacerbate macular edema. So it's usually two to four sessions. Usually it's tolerated quite well by our patients, but the laser can be a little bit painful at times. Certain areas of the retina may be more painful than than others. So it really is a case of working with the patient through that treatment. And, And that treatment causes a reduction in low light vision. So it is an important part of our counseling that that ablating part of the peripheral retina will mean that low light vision is reduced. Um, It can result in some reduction in sensitivity, the peripheral visual field. So if we get on a a, a visual field assessment like we would do for our patients with glaucoma, we can see a significant reduction in sensitivity but those costs are relatively small versus not treating. We know that the risk of severe vision loss and blindness is reduced by 50% at five years um, by having that treatment. The newer treatments that have been in trials, um, the anti-VEGF treatments, which is the mainstay of treatment for um, macular edema, have been shown to be effective for proliferative diabetic retinopathy, but it's not on label. It's not reimbursed by the PBS in Australia. And we find that at about five years, outcomes are very similar for both laser and and injected treatments. The downside of the injected treatments is they need to be administered ongoing at great expense and significant inconvenience to the patient. And so that's why laser remains the mainstay. Um, Usually, once laser has been administered, um, that's all that's needed. The patient still needs to undergo regular review, but it's, it's usually the case that, that a complete PRP or panretinal photocoagulation is sufficient treatment. Moving on to, to diabetic macular edema, that's swelling in the central area of vision that causes distortion of vision and, and blurred vision. We know nowadays that the very best treatment for that is the injected inhibitors of vascular endothelial growth factor, that key angiogenic factor that causes leakage um, from blood vessels. And, um, and that is, as I mentioned before, a long-term therapeutic journey, often very intensive treatment for the first 12 months, and then much less treatment in the, in the second 12 months. Um, but that often includes, involves monthly injections into the vitreous cavity. What sort of outcomes are you getting? So previously for um, diabetic macular edema, we would apply um, some laser treatment. um, So grid and focal laser. And that was often um, a case of of doing multiple treatments um, was moderately successful. Now we're finding that um, the vast majority of our patients get um, a significant improvement in visual acuity. So whereas in the past, when treating diabetic retinopathy, we were talking about preventing vision loss, for the first time, these new treatments may actually improve
0: vision. Here comes the problem for the GP, Peter. So the patient is actually undergoing treatment either for pen photocoagulation or uh, macular edema. We need to support our patients through this. And the issues that come up are not just, you know, uh, mood issues or financial issues. Uh, they come up with driving and uh, they come up with what about the house? How do I know they're safe because their vision's been impacted? Uh, what sort of supports are available for them? So I guess uh, it's over to you to give us a list of things that as a GP, we ought to be more mindful of as a patient is going through this treatment and how to give them the right help. Yeah, it's a
1: challenging question, David. Certainly, you know, the, j- just to extend one um, small step further on the psychological side of things, i um, it, it may take some time for vision to improve with, with um, the, the injected treatments for diabetic macular edema. And that's why, you know, staying the course and encouragement um, that, that the best longer term visual outcomes are with treatment. And so the GP can, can help to reassure that it's, it's not uncommon for it to be many months before any appre- um, appreciable improvement in vision. That can be even harder in, in patients who have um, good vision in the fellow eye it's hard to appreciate any significant gains gains in in the the eye that's undergoing treatment so providing that that reassurance that you know just staying the course is associated with the best outcomes you know i think the important thing about diabetes management more broadly is that it's it's a it's a team and you know making sure that the multidisciplinary team is fully engaged in care is is really key thinking about driving is really critical. You know, Understanding that there may be periods where it, the patient should not be driving if, if they're not meeting the vision standards and, and making sure that they're engaged with appropriate supports um, so that they're not cut off from the world is really key. Making sure that we make use of, of the, the excellent support um, and information services um, of patient support organisations like Diabetes Australia. Um, Macular Disease Foundation Australia, they have helplines, they have um, you know, great supports. And for our patients who have advanced vision loss, some of the low vision support services are also really important, like Vision Australia.
0: Now, you told me earlier that you're involved in um, a project called Keep Sight. is it? Yes, that's right. What, what is it? So
1: KeepSight is a, um, essentially a digital reminder system to encourage people to, with diabetes to participate in, in regular diabetic retinopathy screening. So I, um, I had the fortune of working in the UK uh, for some time and, and saw just the tremendous impact that a systematic screening program had in the UK. So in the space of about 10 years, they went from diabetes being the leading cause of blindness registration in the UK for, for adults to number three on the list. And that was all thanks to the introduction of a systematic screening program. We don't have, um, we've got a very different health system in Australia. We don't have a systematized approach to screening. So we designed KeepSight to really um, leverage um, the Australian healthcare system to support patients with diabetes. So effectively, anyone with diabetes can self-register to KeepSight. Uh, There's a KeepSight website. Our experience of now with more than 250,000 registrants to the program, um, most people are actually signed up by the healthcare provider, and the vast majority of that is done by optometrists, in fact. Um, Mm -hmm. But as a GP, you can can sign your patients up to KeepSight. Um, And what that does is um, sends the patient a timely reminder when their next eye check is due. They then attend um, for the screening there's a date that's, that's set for the next eye check and that patient then gets an automated reminder from KeepSight. The program is run by Diabetes Australia. And so these reminders come from an independent, um, trusted voice so Diabetes Australia is essentially the, the leading um, support group for, for Australians with diabetes. Um, and it's been shown that reminders from Diabetes Australia have a different sort of impact than reminders say from the optometrist per se. So we work hand-in-hand with the optometry reminder systems. We kick in after those reminders have gone without a a return visit. And we're seeing that um, that this is resulting in an increased re-attendance rate for screening. So we're hopeful that we can drive up uh, attendance for those regular screening episodes that are so critically important to prevent disease from reaching the end
0: stages. That sounds like a really helpful program, Peter. And um, it's obviously free. And it's ongoing, right? That's right. And um, we
1: have, um, through the Commonwealth Government, who who funds the program, the fortune of of having access to the National Diabetes Services Scheme, which is a register of of about 90 to 95% of all Australians with diagnosed diabetes. And so in the coming months, we're going to be um, sending mail-outs to everyone on the NDSS, inviting them to attend for an eye check if they've not done so in the last 12 months. Uh, Will the GPs be informed if the patient drops between
0: the cracks or not?
1: Um, So that is, I guess, the next stage in deployment of the program. We're really keen to integrate KeepSight with um, GP uh, electronic medical records to make it as as automated as possible and to synchronise those reminders. So that's uh, very much a watch this space. The primary um, objective in, in the first two years of the program have really been integrating KeepSight into the electronic medical record of every optometry provider in the country and we're we're doing very well there. We've got about 70% of all optometrists around the country signed up and and, um, with electronic medical record integration and we're now starting to see a significant uptick in, in the number of registrants we have.
0: Well, thank you for telling us about it, Peter, I think it's going to be really helpful for patients, and and also for GPs, because sometimes we do forget, uh, because our time is precious, and there's too many demands on us. uh, And any help is appreciated. So Peter, as we come to the end, I just wonder what are some of your key messages to our listeners?
1: Um, well, one thing that I think we've not really mentioned um, to this point in time is, is the importance of clear communication between members of the, of the management team and, and <laughs> GP, GPs are at the heart of, of diabetes management. So my strong recommendation is that any referral that's made for um, eye screening to an optometrist Is accompanied by a formal written referral we know that that um, is likely to mean that the patient gets the right eye check so many patients with diabetes may not tell their optometrist that they have diabetes and they may just get a a check for spectacles, which is quite different from a comprehensive eye exam for diabetes. So um, a written referral is more likely to lead to the right exam. It's also significantly more likely to lead to return correspondence. We know from our research that only about 30% of optometry diabetes eye checks result in correspondence back to the GP. That can be more than doubled by a written referral from the GP. And, And, again, that's that critical information, that window into complications more broadly that's really valuable to the GP Mm. so yeah a written referral I think that that importance of educating our patients um, of the link between diabetes and eye disease the role of of keep sight and encouraging our patients to consider signing up to keep sight and then the importance of that 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 risk-based approach to complications thinking about the risk for that patient um, and supporting them on the treatment journey which is often prolonged and non-trivial
0: thank you for your time and thank you for taking us through a difficult topic
1: thank you very much david
0: take care thanks for your time bye peter here we go macular disease foundation australia has launched two free cpd courses to help general practitioners reduce the incidence and impact of macular disease Australia's leading cause of severe vision loss and blindness. For more information, check out the resources section of this podcast webpage. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.